Good morning, everyone. My name is Joel, and I'm one of the pastors here at Eaglemont Church. I'm so glad that you're able to stream online with us. This week, we're moving into week three of our series, The Problem of God. Uh, every week, we're going to be looking at some of the challenges that are out there to the idea of God and Christianity. Uh, I want to tell you a little story of myself when I was in high school. Of all the classes that I took, the one class that I actually really enjoyed and always actually was early for was gym class. And I remember uh, if you go first thing when gym was first thing in the morning, wait outside and our changing rooms were connected with the gymnasium. So the doors to the changing rooms were actually the way you got in from outdoor outside of the, of the school. And so when you were there first thing, especially in the winter and it was cold, not Alberta cold, I grew up around Vancouver, but still it was wet and it felt damp and it was cold and a little uncomfortable. And you go there and first thing in the morning, you go to reach for that door. I was usually one of the first ones there and you'd reach for that door, turn the handle and oftentimes it'd be locked because the teacher hadn't come and unlocked me yet. And over the next five, 10 minutes, as students would gather as class time came closer, you have this mass of people and one by one, every person would go to grab that door. Even though there'd be a collection of 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 students that would be standing outside, every person who came each time would grab that same door handle to try and open it. Now you would assume that these people aren't just standing here in the rain for fun, but yet there's something ingrained in us as humanity where we just desire to know knowledge for ourselves, to experience things for ourselves. This debate about the existence of God centers on the question of evidence. Psalms 34, 8 in the Bible says this. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So taste, experience God, but also see. This word see is to look at, to consider, or to inspect that God is good. See, things that we often take for granted is true today. For example, gravity itself. We're all at one time hypothesis that needed to be proven or explained. God is to be tasted, to be experienced, but he is also to be seen, to be looked at and inspected. Are you open to see if God is real? This morning, we are going to spend some time looking at some of the evidence for his existence. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga points out that there are two dozen or so philosophical arguments for the existence of God. In order to explore these this morning, I'm going to streamline these down to kind of two basic arguments. The one being the morality of the soul, and the second argument being the motion of the stars, or cosmology. Now, just as a note as we dive in today, if you find that this morning we're not able to go to the depth that you would like to, we're limited because of the time, but I encourage you to go online and check out some other great teachers who are going to be able to expound even more than I am this morning. Rabbi Zacharias, William Lane Craig. You can Google them, look on YouTube, and there's some great teachings uh, from them on the existence of God. But this morning we're going to look at these two kind of lanes here. The first being the morality of the soul and the evidence of morality. Now, the word morality means principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong, or good and bad. C.S. Lewis, who you would have heard of being quoted last week, was an Oxford scholar and professor. He was a skeptical atheist for most of his life. He writes in his book, Mere Christianity, the trigger for him that actually took him from atheism to Christianity was this concept of morality. What Lewis is pointing out here is that across humanity, there seems to be this code 
this universal set of morals and values. You see it all the time in real life. This afternoon, if you go to the grocery store and there's a line in front of you, you'll naturally take place if there's two or three people who are there before you and you'll wait behind them and allow them to purchase their groceries first. There's this unwritten code that's there. Or if you're around some kids and you decide to give one of them a snack, especially if you have your own children, there's an expectation from the others that they'll get something of equal. So they want a piece of orange or they want to have a piece of candy as well. If you're watching the news and you see the highlights of a man who risks his life to go into a burning building to save a stranger, we look at that as heroic. All of these unwritten morals and values that we have. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I struggle with the idea of driving on Edmonton roads. <laughs> They're narrow, there's tons of lights, and it doesn't always go the speed that I like. With that, I'm already kind of agitated at points, and the worst is when you get that person who cuts in front of you, almost swiping your vehicle, and then forces you to slow down as they hit their brakes. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I'd like to say that it doesn't bother me at all, and I've never affected by it, but that'd be untrue. And so what do I do afterwards if that's ever happened? When I get the opportunity where it moves to double lane again, I'll creep up to that vehicle. They know that they shouldn't have cut me off. And it's funny, as you creep up and you look over to give that, hey, what's going on? What's happening here? No eye contact. Why? Again, there's this set expectation ingrained in us of there being right and there being wrong. Where did these underlyings of morality come from? That murder and stealing is bad. That justice is good. Christianity would state that they come from the greater design of the person who made creation, God. There is a general moral law that is written into all of us. And Christianity would also point out that in order to have a moral law that's in all of us, you would need a moral law giver. Without a law giver, where do we find the basis for these general beliefs and morals that we see throughout humanity? From the beginning of the book of Genesis, the Bible describes how God created mankind from the beginning in a specified order with right and wrong. Right in that passage of Genesis, if you go through in Genesis 1 to 3 in the creation story, we see that God created this beautiful garden where everything was good, but there was also the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One thing that was supposed to not be touched that was not good. Again, the purpose of this series is to help us investigate skeptical questions in search of facts and evidence. So what I want us to do this morning is look at some of the arguments that are available that would oppose this Christian theory of morality. We'll walk through those as well and give them some time and attention and see where we come out in the end. So the first argument would be this, that this moral kind of universal acceptance among humanity is simply relativistic. This argument would dictate that really there isn't any universal right or wrong. Everything is relative to the individual. What's right for you is right for you and what's right for me is right for me and we don't have the ability to tell each other anything else. There are a lot of influential voices in our culture that would speak to this and really preach this doctrine today. But truthfully they don't actually follow through 
on what this philosophy would say. If you're going to stand on this type of relativistic understanding of morality, you give up the ability to have any standard of right or wrong, which means you shouldn't really care what anybody else does. That includes when we see mass murders, you can say, I wouldn't do that and I wouldn't choose it, but we don't have the right on this. If we have this type of moral background philosophy, we don't have the right to say that you can't or shouldn't. If someone robbed you of all your possessions, you can't really complain because they're just making the choice that's right for them. The reality is, is even those who are moral relativists, they still care. The truth is we know that there is wrong. We may have different interpretations of where the line is of wrong and right, but everyone has a sense that there is wrong and right, just and unjust. No matter where you are from, what ethnicity you are, or your economic status that you find yourself in. If someone was to drop an atomic bomb today on a hospital filled with infants and seniors, we would all think that that was horrific. There'd be something inside of you that would, that would cringe at that idea because there is wrong. When you hear of women being raped and children being beaten, there's something that does not sit well inside of you. It goes against the morals that are ingrained within us. There is evil in the world and we revolt at the sound of it. Why? Because as philosophers Lewis and Kant state, there is a law or rule that transcends cultural values and our human experiences. There is an absolute right and wrong in the universe. So let's move on from this relativistic moral law perspective. Another argument is that the moral law that we all contain is simply socially constructed. Your morals are the results of your cultural surroundings. Now, there is truth to this. The reality is, is the home you were raised in, the country you live in, it has an impact on the morals and the values that you have. But this doesn't explain morals that are universally held in every country, in every culture, amongst every people group. Do not murder. Be kind to your neighbor. Rape is bad. Desire for justice is good. These are universally held and it doesn't matter where you're from. This concept of justice, let's just take that for instance. Just and unjust. Where does that come from anyways? It doesn't make sense to have just and unjust unless there is an objective measure to compare our lives against. That's the point of moral law. We do believe in right and wrong. That there is such a thing called justice tells us that mercy is better than hate. That loyalty is a virtue and that there is evil in the world. All of these convictions give meaning to our lives. But if there is no absolute right and wrong, all of them go away. They are but a mirage. Meaningless, weightless, worth abandoning with every other construct of modernity. Those are the stakes we're talking about here. It's why it's so important that we investigate this and find out what's present. Romans 2, 14 to 15 says this in the Bible. For when Gentiles, now when the Bible says Gentiles, if you go to the Old Testament, there was a period of history where God had a chosen people, the Jews, that he first chose to reach out to. And anybody who was not a Jew was a Gentile. They were outside of those who God gave the Ten Commandments and other things to at the, at the beginning of, of uh, the Old Testament. It says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, 
but by nature do what the law requires, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Now, by saying that the law is written on their hearts, in this verse, the Apostle Paul, who is the writer of this, is inferring that there is also a moral lawgiver, a, a composer that writes it on their hearts. Richard Dawkins and those who would follow his teachings would argue with the Christian case for moral, a moral lawgiver by pointing out that there are those who are not Christians, but who do really good things. I, I want to take a second to tell you that that statement is absolutely right. There are hundreds, thousands of those who do not go to church, who are not professing Christians, who do good things. Christianity does not have the corner on that market. Christians don't have the corner on that market. And while his statement is true, what Dawkins fails to understand is that Christians actually agree with him in that. That you do not believe to believe in God to be good or want to do good. His study simply proves what Christians propose. That every person has what the Apostle Paul calls this law. These morals that are written in their hearts. Whether they believe in God or not. The creation narrative depicts humanity as a species made in the image of God. We see that in Genesis 1.26. That there is a reflection of God's goodness in humanity. Now we make choices of what we do with that. And we can choose how we want to react. And we sometimes choose things that aren't good. And that's the reason for the sacrifice of Jesus. But there is this image of God imprinted in everyone. Not just Christians. Again, the reality of, this, uh, of universally held frameworks of morality... This concept that it's just out there, it's made by social, social constructs completely, is, it really debunks this theory. Final argument would be this. Final argument for, for why there is this universal morality in humanity is an evolutionary explanation. Again, Dawkins and others would argue that these moral urges we have across cultures were programmed into our brains in ancestral times when we lived in small and stable bands like baboons. The argument would be that there are many circumstances where we act kind towards others as a mechanism for our own survival. So if you take loving your neighbor as an example, he would explain that that's a way of trying to make sure that you have children, you treat them kindly so that your genes can continue on past you. It's really a way of, of just trying to make sure that you survive. The problem with this explanation for good, as many have pointed out, is if we inherit our morality from our genes, wherein survival is of the utmost consideration. Many of our modern moral constructs are unexplained and even counterproductive. You take the illustration we talked about earlier with the man who would enter that burning building to save someone else's life. That would be seen as stupidity rather than something that's honorable and brave. If this theory were true, then hostility towards anyone who is not in our small tribe would be considered right or moral behavior. This theory is obviously directly contradictive to the belief that mankind shares. That sacrificing money, emotion, and even life for someone not in our tribe is right and noble.
not only do the naturalistic explanations for the origins of morality and consciousness fall short, but they also have embedded in horrible byproducts. If you look through history, you know that according to natural selections, Dawkins would state that there were races of humanity that were deemed as more advanced and really more favorable than others. In fact, Dawkins had prejudice to the unfavored races. Specifically, when he talked about those who were mentally challenged, for example, he argued that they shouldn't be allowed to marry or reproduce because they would hinder the progress of the species. The very fact that something within us is repelled by racism, sexism, or unequal treatment of the poor begs the question that such convictions would have to come from somewhere because they're not just natural. Jesus taught this in the Bible. It says in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than to give up their life for their friends. Jesus not only said this, but he did this. These words are contrary to self-preservation, but yet they are deemed as admirable by mankind. The creation narrative of the Bible states this in Genesis 1.26, that God made humanity in his image. It is the truth that within you and within me, there is a reflection of the image of God. An ingrained programming of a moral framework, as well as a desire for connectivity and relationship beyond just ourselves. Written within the depths of your being is a knowledge that there is good and there is evil. Over time, what the Bible calls sin has brought confusion and disagreement along the lines of what falls under those two categories. But the very presence alone of there being a right and wrong speaks to the reality of a superior being who ingrained and programmed those precepts and morals and implanted them into creation himself. So let's look at the second argument this morning. And that would be the evidence of cosmology or the formation of the universe. I ask you this question, how do we explain the existence of the universe? In this in scientific uh, discipline, there's the concept called contingency. This is the idea that if something begins to exist, its existence is dependent on something outside of itself that pre-existed itself, causing it to come into being. I uh, recently looked in the mirror this week and the light that was coming into the bathroom came just at the right angle, whereas I was brushing my teeth, I noticed over my left ear something that I had never seen before. I'm getting older and 40 is starting to come. To my fright, I saw something growing out of the top of my ear as I experienced my first ear hair. It's the sign that life has really begun to move on. <laughs> now that I just noticed at that moment, but that didn't just happen. And by the way, it got picked out, <laughs> but it didn't just happen. Something pre-existed, something happened before I ever noticed it. The reality is, is that for something to exist, something has to pre-exist to cause it. How do we explain how the universe came into being? There are several responses to this. And we're going to take some time to investigate each one. The first is this, it's an agnostic response. 
Now the agnostic response would say this, you don't need to start the universe, the universe is just always being. Uh, this was an argument that was hard to dispute until 1929. Those of you who studied science would be familiar with Edwin Hubble and that he made one of the greatest scientific discoveries of the 20th century when he discovered that the universe itself began to exist. Hubble discovered that galaxies were not stagnant, but were rapidly moving apart from each other. And as they did, space itself was expanding and getting bigger. Now, by measuring the speed and distance of galaxies as they moved away from each other, Hubble was able to deduce what modern cosmology now confirms. All galaxies, stars, planets, and matter had a common place of origin. According to the Big Bang Theory, all space, matter, and energy itself began to exist at a point in the past. In addition to the expansion of space itself, the second law of thermodynamics, which tells us that the energy in the universe is decreasing, also hints at the finite nature of the universe because it tells us that energy in the universe is limited and dying, essentially like a giant uh, flashlight with batteries. And if the universe itself was eternal, these batteries would already be running out of energy. The universe itself, itself has a start date. It has a birth date. Science has concluded this. And this, it's seen that this uncaused source of all that exists because the universe itself has a birthday. It can't be the uncaused source. It has a start itself. So if the universe began to exist, how did it begin? Here's a few theories that are out there. And you can think about what what you would put yourself under. Number one is this, the nothing hypothesis. And this is how this particular viewpoint works. What caused the universe? Nothing. It doesn't really seem like a great argument. It's the equivalent of if you have kids and you have ever come into your, your house in one of the rooms and seen an explosion of stuff all over the walls, toys all over the place, and you go, what happened here? And the response was nothing. You wouldn't just accept that answer. You're going to find out what caused this mess. This does not seem like an appropriate response for the formation of the universe. Just think of this. The chances of our universe coming into existence, scientists say, is one chance in 10 to the 138th power. Now, to put this into context, 10 to the 17th power is our best estimate of the number of seconds in the entirety of history of the universe. 10 to the 70th power is the number of atoms in the entire universe. The chances of the universe coming together is 10 to the power of 138. Astrophysicists say there are around 122 variables that would have to be lined up in precise values in order for our universe to come into existence. And if any of them was off by even one part of a millionth millionth, matter would have not been able to coalesce. There would be no galaxies, no stars, no planets, and no people. What seems more likely to you? Considering the possibility of a higher being who created all this or nothing? A second theory is this. 
um, a multiverse theory. And essentially, to simplify it, this is the way this theory works, is that the chances of this one universe happening is 10 to the 138th power, but what if there was an infinite number of, of universes? What if this has just been repeating a 20 billion year cycle where we have a, a big bang that happens and then eventually everything crunches back down and then there's another big bang that happens. And so there's an infinite amount of, of universes and we just happen to strike the one that had the possibility of it happening. This is a, a really creative solution and truthfully has provided the plot line for a lot of great sci-fi films. But the truth is, is that there's not one shred of evidence for either of these explanations, an infinite number of universes or a 20 billion year cycle. In fact, most scientists would agree that the idea that it, the universe will contract, there's no evidence for that. There's evidence for the opposite. Dawkins himself believing that the universe is going to only continue to grow. These arguments are really faith positions with no evidence at all. And in the end, atheism asks us to believe in an infinite number of metaphysical realities for which we have no evidence. While Christianity asks us to believe in one God for which we actually do have some evidence. These are just a few reasons why more and more people, like myself, find it more rational to believe in the existence of God. This event that we're speaking of of creation is, is what Genesis calls the beginning in Genesis 1.1. And here we see that God created the universe starting with light and moving forward from there. As astrophysicist Robert Jastrow says in his book, God and the Astronomers, now we see what the astronomical evidence leads to, a, or sorry, how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The details differ, but the essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. The chain of events leading to man commence suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time in a flash of light and energy. Again, whatever begins to exist has a cause. There's a principle called the anthropic principle that suggests the universe is fine-tuned and is possibly, it is possibly the most powerful scientific argument for the existence of God. When did the laws of physics that hold everything and have made everything together, when did those even come into play? It couldn't have been at the moment of the Big Bang itself because otherwise it wouldn't have been able to act according to it. It had to be in place before that. Scientific evidence points to the reality that mind had to exist before matter, which is the opposite of what atheism teaches, that matter led to mind and consciousness. But this is actually on point with what Jesus taught us about God. He taught us in John 4, 24, that God is spirit. This is part of the reason why no one has to prove that someone created God. A question that can oftentimes get thrown out. Well, if God created everything, who created God? Again, if we go back to the first words in Genesis, in the beginning, God. The Bible teaches that God is eternal, meaning he always has been and always will be. He was in the beginning. God exists outside of the realm of time and space because God is spirit. If you think of it like the movie Back to the Future and you had the DeLorean that could travel through time and there was a linear timeline in front of us. and You could go to any point in time. 
God not only has the ability to do that, but it tells us that God is outside of time itself. And so it's like the equivalent of he can see that timeline all at once. That's why God was able to create because he already was in the beginning. I'm going to play a clip here of scientist Francis Collin. He's one of the greatest scientists of our time, directing the Human Genome Project, mapping the over 3 billion letters in human DNA. Considered by many to be the most significant scientific undertaking of our time, he describes how he encountered Jesus and came to believe in the truth of Christianity. Well, in the home where I grew up, uh, faith was not something that was talked about very much. Uh, my father was a professor of drama, my mother a playwright. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it, and at the end of that, explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help, but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith, she turned to me, and I had been silent, and she looked at me quizzically and she said, what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity, because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that, in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible uh, and many other things including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician that brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as 
a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history, and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings, and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me. A journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to. A journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. So perhaps you're listening to all this and in your mind there's a new question that comes. It's one that's sparked by intrigue and maybe confusion. If the world, mankind, and the universe itself was created by a higher being, why? Why would a higher being, why would God do all of this? Again, as we've spoken about twice this morning, in Genesis 1.26, the Bible tells us that God created you in his image. You have a reflection of God imprinted in you. He didn't do this for trophies or for accolades, but he actually did this for relationships. 1 John 4.8 states that God is love. Again, God is not matter. God is spirit. And core to his being, God is love. It's why you, being made in his image, have this deep desire to love and to be loved. To know and to be known. In his desire for relationship and love, God chose to create humanity with this unique disposition, the ability to choose. To choose to do right or wrong. To choose to listen or obey. To choose to love him or to hate him. See, love is not something that can be forced. Love only exists where choice is allowed. God could have programmed us like robots, could have made you do everything that he wanted you to do, but then it wouldn't have actually been love. It wouldn't have been real. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, you and me, that he gave his son Jesus to pay the penalty of what it cost for the decisions and the wrong things that we have done so that we could have that relationship with him again. Love without choice is artificial, and God doesn't want artificial with you. He wants something real. Again, that psalm that we read at the beginning of the message today, taste and see that the Lord is good. See the evidence of God. But we're also called to taste, which means we're called to experience God. He wants you to experience relationship with him. Where are you at today? Perhaps you're maybe intrigued a little bit this morning and you are still exploring, you want to investigate more, check out some of those teachers I taught you about and join us next week as we continue this series and we're going to be talking about the, the topic of the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Perhaps you're already at the point where the light is starting to come on and deep inside of you, you have a realization. I think God is real. The Bible says this, that whoever believes in his heart and confesses with his lips... Jesus' Lord will be saved. That if you today 
no matter who you are, no matter where you are. If you believe and you choose to speak that you believe, that that love that God reached out with, with his son, can come to you. I want to lead you in a prayer if that's you today. Pray with me. And this is a way of just inviting God to come in and to start that relationship, to begin to taste, to experience God. God, I'm still a bit confused. I don't know everything, but I believe in you. I know I haven't done everything right, but I desire this love that you want and you offer for me. Would you please come? Please forgive me for the things that I've done knowingly and unknowingly that go against what you want and help me to live my life for you. Help me to be filled with your love. In Jesus' name, amen.